Well, gang, I am thrilled for a couple reasons to see how many of you are coming out on this brand of church. This is week 10 for Impact Church, and I know we call it a launch team, and we're doing that for a reason, and that is that we want to have everything in place uh, before we have our grand opening. But again, I want to remind you that we're doing everything that a church does, and there are churches around the world that don't have buildings or anything. In fact, they've got to meet in secret because it's against the law to even meet and lift up the name of Christ. So we don't need all that stuff, but in order to reach the culture that we're in, there's some things that we feel like uh, we need and that God's going to provide for us. And so our hope and our prayers that we'll have that grand opening um, come Easter. So I'm glad you guys are here for a lot of people. Uh, it's funny, Christmas time is supposed to center around Jesus Christ, but a lot of people get so busy. I hear a ring in this, a little bit of a buzz. Can you break it down a little? You guys hear that or is that just me? Or are we in a gym? Oh yeah, that's right. So it bounces off the walls. Well, it's not funny as in haha, but funny peculiar that a lot of times this time of year people get so busy they can't make it to church and yet this is the time we celebrate supposedly Jesus's birthday the reason for the season is Jesus Christ and so people get so busy with parties and so busy with decorations and so busy you know closing year-end business deals and just so much going on and it's funny how Satan kind of turns up the heat I think he does this time of year so the time we're supposed to focus more on Jesus it's hard to do it's almost impossible to do. And so many people are completely worn out this time of year, and so when they're shopping and spending all their free time doing things like that, they come home and they just plop on the couch and they just watch TV and they go, well, I can't go to church because I just need to rest. I just need to recover. They're couch potatoes. They'll channel surf or watch 10 or 15 favorite shows a week. I've got one or two favorite shows. No, I'm not going to tell you what they are because you might think less of me if I did. And... Uh, what I like better than watching shows is I like watching culture and seeing what shows they're starting to like. I, I said I like it. I, I don't know if I like it in a good way. I think I like it in a train wreck way as I watch culture kind of shift. There's one coming out on MTV, the network for Ivy League road scholars everywhere, um, called Buck Wild. Any of you heard of this one at all? Anybody heard that this coming out? Okay, you will hear of this and you will wish you didn't hear of this show. Um, it's a takeoff on the highly intellectual Jersey Shore. I had asked for a show of hands of, of which one of you have seen that, but I'm afraid it would taint the way that I feel about you for like the rest of your life. So I, I really don't want to know. We're just not going to go there. I don't know if you watch that, that show. But here's what Buck Wild is. It's a reality show about life as a redneck hillbilly teen. Some of you going, careful pastor, that's me. I mean, I was, you know, I know we're in the South and I got to tread really light here, but I'll be careful. So it's, as you might have guessed, it's, a, it's amazingly, it's fascinatingly void of, of any perceived value or substance of any kind. There's nothing in this show that I can see because I read some articles, I saw some previews, and I'm going, it's amazing, this is a show about stupidity. This is a show about absolutely nothing and, and, and terrible values and stuff. It just kind of boils down to our society's fascination um, with watching train wrecks. Our societies love to see somebody uh, destroy their life. Even so, if they kick it off with a Buckwild Christmas in Backwoods Beaver Creek, I think I might watch it. I might watch something like that. Now, there's another show that tops the ratings. My wife's not going to like this. They sneak over and get kind of, kind of against. I, you didn't see that there right there. I was get a little sip of Red Bull like I'm not hyper enough already this morning. Well, there's another show that tops the ratings. I, I've looked throughout this past year, and this show actually comes in number one a lot. Number one. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I promise you I will slap you around if I hear that you watch a show. It's simply called 
You guys are all leaning forward. You really, really want to know. Is he going to pick on a show that I love or is he going to? Yeah, well, yeah, I am. I'm probably going to pick on a show. Here it is. It's called Revenge. Revenge. And I see nods. And, you know, when you nod, you're telling me you watch it. You know that, right? It's like five knots. You just gave yourself away. It's about, as some of you might have guessed, getting back at the rotten, low-down, conniving, good-for-nothings that hurt the main character. That's what the whole show is about. Supposedly this gal, it's, it's starring a, a, a lady whose, whose parents were done wrong or maybe even killed or something. And suppose this gal's going to get them back. And she's going to pick them off, either literally by actually killing them one by one, or at least, at the very least, destroying their lives so that she can be H-A-P-P-Y, so that she can be happy. And the premise here is that, well, if I destroy them and see them crumble, dead is good, or crying and completely broken, I'll be filled with joy. I'll be content. And I know you guys are looking back at me like, that's wrong, Pastor, and you shouldn't feel that way, but I'm talking about a show that's been number one. I'm talking about a show that people love to watch, and I don't think it's because it's got Oscar award-winning acting in it. It's hugely popular. Why? Well, because I think it plays right into our selfish desire to hold anyone and everyone we meet to an impossibly high ethical, moral standard that we know we ourselves can't possibly live up to. Isn't that bizarre? But we want everybody else, you know, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't live like that. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't go there. And yet we're looking at our lives and we're, we're doing the same thing. So why do we have that? And if people do us wrong and they hurt us, there's a natural desire within us to get them back. Why do we do that? Do we want to I don't know, even the scales? I say there's a natural thing within us to do this. I think it's actually unnatural spiritually. I think it's something that was placed in us after the fall. I think after Adam and Eve fell, now there's this desire when other people hurt us and do things that to even the scales, to make things right, for there to be justice. But when I'm a sinner and you're a sinner, you know, we can't make things right with each other. I can't do it. I can't make you right because I'm not qualified. I'm too messed up and I have too much baggage in my life, so I can't hold you accountable to perfection because I'm not perfect. So why do we do this? And why is it so hugely popular? And don't kid yourselves, it is. I mean, I wonder how a a show entitled Simply Forgive would do. I mean, could you see that? Forgive, starring, starring, who did I have down as the star for that? Taylor Swift as Pollyanna. Taylor Swift, on the season premiere of Forgive, Pollyanna, played by Taylor Swift, is sobbing because some bullies told her that all her songs sound the same. And so she goes crying to her mother, played by Paula Abdul, looking for the truth. Can I sing? Do I have talent? But Paula Abdul, will she forgive her mom? But Paula Abdul wrestles about whether she will tell her the truth or not, or just waste the entire show rambling on about nothing which is not really acting for Paul Abdul. Will Taylor Swift finally forgive her mother or will she end up writing a song about her tormenting bullies, making it clear that they are never, ever, ever, ever going to get the best of her? Now, I cannot see a show about forgive. I'm sorry, but I can't see it being popular. In our culture, I'm trying to think, was there ever, was there ever a show just about forgiveness? Now, here's why I think, I might be wrong, Here's why I think a show about forgiveness, though, probably wouldn't be popular. Our society will accept forgiveness and little bubblegum, little shallow, little sweet issues. You know, somebody kind of said something to hurt your feelings a little, let's get it right and let's forgive, and that's okay. But if they really did you wrong in a massive way, if they really did you wrong in a huge way, then our society looks at forgiveness as, one, naive at best, and two, as weakness. 
If you forgive, you're perceived as weak. Truth is, people want to see payback. They want to see justice and punishment. They want to see revenge. We're not interested in, most of the time, in forgiveness. We're not interested in biblically turning the other cheek. Uh, even gang, Christians. Even Christians. Forget even, especially. <laughs> especially Christians. Now, let me share with you all one of the most misused, least understood, and flat-out abused passages in all of Scripture. Matthew 18. I just want you to pause a minute and, say, and think, have you ever used Matthew 18 as a phrase? Have you ever heard Matthew 18 used about you? Have you ever been in a group where people said, well, we just need to go to Matthew 18? Just kind of hold that thought. And I've heard phrases like this regarding Matthew 18. Well, did you go through Matthew 18 with them? Okay, so obviously people know about it. We already did Matthew 18. It's their fault now. They didn't respond to Matthew 18. That's God's punishment on them because they didn't listen to Matthew 18 when we went through. I've heard all these things about the mysterious and, believe me, misunderstood passage of Matthew 18. Well, listen, gang, Matthew 18 is a three-step process. That's what you'll find if you turn there around about verse 15. It's a three-step process where 99.999% of the time, those throwing it around and using it skip one or all three steps I mean, I'll say, let's do Matthew 18, and there's only three steps, and I've seen most people, when you ask them, you find out they've skipped at least one step, maybe all of them altogether. So you wonder, why are, why are you even, why are we fascinated with Matthew 18 if we don't plan on really using it? Uh, mostly they miss the whole stated goal of it, the whole result, why we even do Matthew 18, which is, you know what, don't take my word for it, turn there. Why don't you turn to Matthew 18 in the Bibles that I know you brought. Come on. Matthew 18. By the way, for my liking, way too quiet in here. If I don't get some feedback, like an old-time Southern Gospel African-American church, I will start singing. (laughs) Which will not be bad. You'll enjoy it, I think. You'll, you'll, You'll start talking back. I know that. So Matthew 18. If you go down to verse... 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That seems pretty easy, doesn't it? I don't know, Pastor, what does that mean in the Greek? Exactly what it says in the Greek. There's the first step. And nine times out of 10, I find that that step is replaced with something like this. Did you go through Matthew 18? Yep, sure did. Then you went to your brother or sister in private. Uh, Private? Well, no, not exactly. What we did was we shared it with our small group to get advice about how to go to them in private. Well, that's called gossip. The Bible talks about that. Now someone needs to go to you doing Matthew 18. You've gotten so far out of this and how you did it, now somebody needs to confront you. Now you've offended. Now look at the second part of, of that verse. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. I'm using New Living Translation and ESV here. Listens to you and confesses it. So that just gave you a, a, a glimpse into the goal, right? If they listen to you, if they actually listen to you that you heard them and it matters to them and they say, I've sinned and they confess it, something good just took place in their heart. And then in the ESV, I love it, it says, you have won him back. Well, what's that? Well, again, that's a, a 10 cent word in, in Christian circles called reconciliation. That's reconciliation. And repentance, the two R words, and reconciliation, that's the goal of Matthew 18. That's the goal of Matthew 18. I almost never see it. 
we don't like that goal, so we skip the first two steps or replace them with gossip and slander. Then we move right to the last part of verse 17. Look at that. And if he refuses to listen, now all three steps have supposedly been done, but we skip right over to this. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector, which really means treat him like dirt, cast him out, don't have anything to do with him anymore. And I can't tell you how many people have come to me over the years as a pastor and claimed that the person they are slandering or mad at or, or, or giving the silent treatment to is the one they've already gone through Matthew 18 with. Now, why did I go through all that? To point this out, their version of Matthew 18 is just revenge, isn't it? Am I wrong? And if you guys were awake, what would you tell me? Am I wrong? We go to Matthew 18 because someone has offended us. We're hurt. So we go to them and we sometimes go to church and we tell everybody how they hurt us and then we go, oh God, get them. Get them, God. Lightning bolt would be nice right about now. Not a huge one, don't kill them, just cripple them. Just maim them a little bit because of what they did to me and that's Matthew 18. That's nothing to do with Matthew 18. <clears throat> God's goal is reconciliation. You know that's a testimony to the world when they see people who didn't get along reconcile in the Lord because they can't do that. They can't do that. That's why non-Christians, that's why the secular world without God, we come up with things like no-fault divorce. What is that? Is there such a thing as no-fault divorce? We're getting divorced. Why? I don't know because neither of us did anything wrong. <laughs> Whose fault was it? There, you read the paper. There's no fault. No fault here. No fault at all. We're just getting divorced. What? I mean, it's impossible. But if you work it this way, it's because revenge is something in us that was placed there after the fall. Now watch this. Unless we're, we're revenge is something we want unless we're on the receiving end of something that's been done to us. Unless we desperately need mercy. Unless we desperately need forgiveness and a second chance. Then you know what I find? Then we're just asking everyone, can't we just change the rules for a minute here? Can't we just do this a little different? Please, I, I need this thing. I've heard about it in the Bible. I think it's in there. I, I need grace and mercy from you. And we don't see it because we don't give it. And what did Jesus say? That you'll be forgiven according to how you forgive others. So if you don't forgive, don't be surprised. Well, nobody seems to be able to or willing to forgive you. So gang, if you're just joining us, we began a brand new series last week entitled Christmas Reset. It's my goal. It's been my goal as a pastor every single year I've been a pastor. It's an amazing challenge. It's very, very hard to do because every year, last week, if you're here uh, um, and you're a Mac user, well, I guess you can do this on computers too. I said that one of the things that, that messes me up on computers is I like to open a lot of tabs. Do we have any tab openers here? Please confess. It's time. All right, we got a few. So I open a tab and I see an article I want to read and I'll just keep it open. And then I'll be, I'm going to read that later. Don't have time now. I'll open another one. Somebody sends me a video. Use this in church. I, I will. I'll look at it later. Don't have time. I think my record is 149 tabs open at one time. I average around, I, I, my average is lower than I thought. I went and looked at it, Kendall, but you were wrong. It's not 85. My average is around 50. <laughs> 50 tabs open. Well, that'll bog your computer down. But here's what I find out. This time of year, here's what we do with Jesus. We open up so many tabs around the peripheral of what Christmas is about that we're gonna shut our computer down, we're gonna shut our heart drive down and we're not gonna be able to find Jesus. And it's interesting, if you're a believer and you go in the season, you wanna find him and you're gonna open up more and more tabs and more and more subjects and get more and more busy, good luck. Good luck with that, good luck finding him. So this series, Christmas Reset, it basically tracks with a thing called Advent, which in all the time that I've been a pastor, I've actually never done this. I've never done Advent before. But this year, we're gonna do it, we're gonna take a, a 
we're going to track with it. We're refreshing modern look at Advent, this old tradition. Now, the order of Advent seems a little bit suspect to me. It, it kind of, kind of, it almost always goes like this. It starts with hope, then it goes to love, and then it goes to joy, and then it goes to peace. And I was looking at this thing. I didn't want to preach in that order. I mean, I thought, are there Advent rules? Are there Advent police that'll come and get me? Because I'm going to mess this thing up. I'm going to just shuffle it. I don't, it's not, it's not the Bible. It's like Lutheran. So I think I can play with it a little bit. I don't think Martin Luther would, would care. But I wanted to mess with it because it seems to me that love should go first, doesn't it? Not, not really hope. The reason I found it odd is because hope seems to be something you only have if love is already present. And maybe it's just me, but I don't know how you have hope if you don't even know how to love, you never experienced it. For example, if you are scared and lost, let's say you've wandered off in the woods or something, and you are scared and lost, and you don't know how to get back home, your only hope is that, what? Someone will come looking for you, right? But what if you're convinced that nobody loves you? Worse, what if it's true, nobody loves you? then you're not going to have much hope that they're going to come looking for you because the one that comes and seeks you out is the one that loves you, right? If nobody loves you, then hope is not present. You don't know what hope is because you've not experienced love. I wonder how many of us believe the following statement. I heard it since I was a little kid in Christianity. We love Jesus. We love him because he first loved us. Some of you maybe don't believe that. Maybe you think you love him because you're pretty sharp. Maybe you think, I love Jesus because I figured it out. I love God because it's obvious there's a God. I love God because I'm a pretty good person. He wanted to team up with me. He needed me. No, the only reason you love him is because his love for you was present first. You may not believe that, but that's hugely important. That drew you in. That made you hope and long for something, that God loves you, that he seeks after you. Truth is, we only love because he first loved us. He always loved us. Catch this, even before we were born. God loved you before you were born. God knew you in your mother's womb. God knew you before you were in your mother's womb. It's all through scripture. And not only knew you and what you'd be and the decisions you make and how many times you rebel and how many times you'd, you'd, you'd stiff arm him, but he still loved you and knew you and pursued you. And once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate us from that love.
Last week I told you that sin and death weren't the only things missing in the Garden of Eden. Some of you weren't here, so I want to remind you of that. In that first perfect paradise, hope wasn't there either. There was no such thing as hope when God first put the man and the woman in the garden. <clears throat> why? Because why would you hope for something when you already have perfection? When you live in paradise and everything is great, you're not going to go, man, I wish it was better. There is no better. It's perfect. Hope only arrived on the scene. Hope was only created. It only appeared after we sinned and death and disease and all entered the picture. Then all of a sudden, hope appeared. But hope for what? Well, ever since the sin happened, we're born, gang, with a hope to return to paradise. We're born with a hope to return to the way it was in relationship with our Father. But here's the cool thing. <clears throat> that was always the plan that we would get back there. That was always the plan that that relationship could be restored. Now, hope may not have existed until after the fall, but something else existed on both sides of the fall, and that's love. God loved the man and woman he had created, and he set them in paradise, and he gave them everything they needed to be fulfilled and happy. A lot of times people say that God doesn't love them because he doesn't give them everything they want. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? God doesn't love me, why? Because other people have this, and I, all I want is, it, and if he's my father, and he, why did, have you ever felt that way? Why don't I win the lottery? How come the people that win the lottery are always idiots? I'm not an idiot, God. I would do well. I would give at least 9% to you if I won the lottery. First of all, no, you wouldn't. It's harder for people when they have more money to give anyway. But we look at that and, and say, people that have everything they want, of course, they'll follow you. But you, God, you don't love me, you make me work, and you make me serve you, and do chores, and kids, you ever say that? Parents, you don't love me, you make me do chores, and serve, and never mind, you do. So if you think that way, know this, that's not a valid gripe. That's not a valid gripe, because that experiment's already been done. That experiment has already been done. There was paradise. We had everything that we wanted. We had one thing we couldn't do. One thing, one tree, one fruit. Everything else you can do. You talk about perfection, so much better than anything you and I, if you go to Hawaii, if you go to the beauty, most beautiful place you can, you got vacation, unlimited money, I'm telling you that's a slum compared to the paradise that Adam and Eve were placed in. They had perfection, and yet, what did they do? All they needed was for somebody to whisper in their ear, this isn't the best there is. God's holding out on you. There's something better out there. Yeah, he's, I mean, this is nice and everything, but if you knew, and, and by the way, all you have to do is break that one rule. I know there's only one rule, but it's the big rule, because if you broke that rule, you'd be like the God who made you. And so all of a sudden, they thought, he doesn't love me. They had everything you could possibly want and still came to the conclusion that God didn't love them and so they sinned. But God, here's the cool part, God didn't stop loving them once they messed up. Love existed on both sides of the fall. The fall set, contrary, the fall set in motion the greatest act of love the world has ever known and will ever know. And it's one verse and what I wanna do for the rest of our time together, I wanna take the most famous verse in the Bible and I wanna help you guys reset love this Christmas. I want you to take that and just take your compass in your heart and reset this thing right. And we can do that by looking at it. There's at least seven. There's probably 20. There's probably 100 things in this one verse, John 3.16. Turn in your Bibles to John 3.16. And that's all we're going to do for the rest of our time. I may sprinkle in a few other verses, but basically this is it. 
You know, our military about 20 years ago, you notice that whenever they have a campaign, they stick the word operation on it? This is just me. I'm the only one, Operation Desert Storm, Operation Desert Shield, Operation, what are some other ones that I found here? Operation Deny Flight, that was one in Bosnia, Operation Infinite Reach. These are campaigns with an objective. But God's objective here is Operation True Love. God's objective is true love, to take us away from the empty, conditional, meaningless love that the world offers, because the world offers a love that you chase after, you get a hold of it, it's like a drug, and it'll make you happy for just a little bit, and you'll get pumped up, and then it just falls flat, because the world's love's going to be the opposite of what I'm about to describe here in the next few points. Now, if you're taking notes, there's seven of these things that describe true love. All Compasses Gang, I learned this week, are set to True North. Some of you going, that's scary, Pastor, because I knew that when I was five. Well, to reset love, we need to point it to true and perfect love. So let me give you these seven things that'll take uh, from this one verse and help us reset love this Christmas. The first one is true love is unconditional. True love is unconditional. And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take apart the verse. Here's the first four words. For God so loved. That's kind of an amount statement, isn't it? How much did God love? Well, he loved us so much, you're gonna find out how much. Ever notice how much of what passes as love today in our world comes with conditions? I mean, not you guys, but everybody else seems to have conditions. Like, uh, sometimes, you know, you watch these shows. Okay, what is that thing? That little thing that keeps happening. There's like a demon in my mic. It's a brand new mic. Get it out. Pray over it. Do something. The thing is freaking me out. Probably, all right, I'm, it's probably my sweater that's doing this, the demon sweater. Well, if you watch these shows, and I promise you I... It's not the demon sweater. It's, it's some other demon floating around here. So it's what? Me. I just had a can of Red Bull. It's not gonna, I'm not standing still. Well, if you watch these shows, the housewives of, real housewives of, I don't know, everywhere, real housewives of Weddington Middle. I know there's a million real housewives things out there. Sometimes you see things like, they seem to love the guy if they're rich. I, it might just be me. I've seen that. I could be wrong. Some of you are going, you're wrong. They're good people. Uh, and then you'll see the husbands. I'll love you if you don't get fat. I don't, if you don't go bald. Uh, if you're nice to me. If you give me things. If you make me look good. Conditions. Condi- I mean, throw out whatever conditions you have. There's conditions everywhere, right? But true love's not conditional. What if God had even one of these attached to his love for us? Even one of these dumb things. Let's take the first one. If you're rich. I mean, are you kidding me? Even if Bill Gates said, God, I I want you to know, I want you to think I'm worthy. I've made billions at my height. I I think I had 97 billion. You can have it all. Am I good enough? What does God want greenbacks for? I mean, what's he gonna, what does he want? He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. It means nothing to him. Why would that impress him? What if we don't get fat? How does that matter to God? He created us in our bodies If for some bizarre reason he didn't want that, yeah, Tom, keep playing with that. Tom knows in a matter of minutes this will disappear. So he would just take the little metabolic dial and turn it to the right and and turn up our metabolism, but he could really care less. That's just the tent we live in. The real us is in here somewhere. He doesn't care about that. What about give him things? Again, what are you going to give God? What are you going to give God? I got a Ferrari for you, God. Well, he's not driving that up in heaven. I mean, what are we going to give them? It's silly. It's ridiculous. It's conditional. 
That God should love the world the way that it is, though, gang? Messed up, stiff-arming him, being anti-God, creating a group that calls themselves atheists that say God doesn't even exist, that God would love that world. That's the mystery, isn't it? Isn't that crazy? I can see if the world was pristine and beautiful and unaffected and still in the garden state and we multiplied and something went wrong, some, some computer virus, whatever, got in there and we started, paradise started slipping, you might say, oh, I love this. I love what I've created. Let me go rescue it. That doesn't, I mean, it's kind of a crazy scenario. But the world as it is, we hate him. We don't treat God. Now, some of you look at me going, I don't hate God. I don't, okay, let me give you scripture to back it up. I don't ever want you to take my word for it. The Gospel of John, chapter one, verse 10 and 11 says, he, and this is talking about Jesus Christ. It starts out, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in verse 10 it says, he, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him. Who created everything we see? Jesus did. Now look at this. Yet the world did not know him, and that's putting it nicely. The creator God comes along and looks at the people he created, looks at all you, and you say, get out of here. I don't like the way you act. I mean, you're too good, and you make me feel uncomfortable. They didn't know him at all. They didn't even recognize him. But not only does the world not recognize him, but openly hates any gesture he seems to make in love towards it. So God acts in love, and the world just goes, I don't want that. And he still loves us. It's kind of like the dog you feed and take to the vet and bathe and groom and give little doggy treats to. You know, no matter what you do, you reach down and pet it and it's like, ah, just bite you. I mean, who's going to love a dog like that? Oh, wait. In our family, there is a dog like that named Strider and my wife loves him. So it might, maybe it is a good example. Look at verse 11. He came to his own and his people did not receive him. So at the very least, that kind of reaction doesn't seem worthy of anyone's affection, right? I mean, the dog that keeps drawing blood and biting you, you're going, okay, uh, let me just at least give you away to somebody else that you might not, but he just keeps pursuing us, even though we, we, we lash out at him. Ungratefully, unlovingly. Seems like that kind of a world receiving God's love is a bad choice. And then John 15, 17 through 19 says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know this, that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So here's the key of why we don't love God naturally after the fall. But because you are not of the world, when you get adopted as a, as a Christ follower, sons and daughters of God, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the world hates Jesus because he shows them how they've changed. He, he brings it up. His very presence in our life brings up the fact that we're not what we're supposed to be. How many of you love having your faults pointed out? I do. I, every day I love when people just tell me, I have Michelle do that. When we wake up in the morning, she says, here's what's wrong with you as a husband. <laughs> and the list is long. It rolls down the down through, no, I mean, I would hate that. And fortunately, she doesn't do that. She could do that and spend all morning doing that, but she doesn't. We don't want that. And Jesus doesn't do that. And that's not his approach. But because of who he is, his presence is like a light in our dark lives. And immediately, we know where we stand. And we know who we are. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, sometimes kids can be the cruelest. And see kids in school and they make fun of, of kids and uh, other kids, and you know, I, I don't know, I guess we think and we learn at an early age that, that that makes us cool, that makes us look better, and I'll never forget there was a group of kids in 
eighth grade in a school I went to, in the middle school I went to in Maryland. Um, and they were just ragging on this kid. He was, a, he was a kid that was, I mean, he's skinny. He's not good at sports and everything. And they actually had a nickname for him. They called him Chicken because he kind of, he kind of was bent over. He didn't stand up straight. And when he walked, he would, like a chicken plucking, he would actually do that. So it was easy to, to kind of pick on him. He's the nicest guy, nicest guy in the world. And one day there's a group of them, a group of four or five guys just laughing their heads off. I mean, they were just, uh, you know, hysterically laughing, making fun of him. You know, he can't throw, he throws like a girl. I mean, he can't do anything. Did you see him in the gym? And they're just cracking up. And the one guy that was, was doing most of the jokes, you know, I was coming, I was hearing this, and it was making me sick. Well, he, you know, put his books away, and they're all laughing. He just took two steps around the corner in the hall, and there was a kid standing right there. And he had heard everything. I mean, he'd stood there the whole time. And I know in their eyes, I don't care how cold you are, but when you meet somebody's eyes like that and you know that you just killed a little part of his soul, oh, you feel it. I don't care how cold you are. You know it, right? And so here's what I'm trying to tell you. Christ, Christ died for that kid who doesn't do everything perfect. Christ died for that kid who has, has issues. So what? He's not the greatest athlete. So he doesn't look right. Christ died for him, knows him, loved him before he was even born. And I guess we can look at that and go, I'm so glad my Savior's like that then you don't know your savior completely because we're not done yet. Christ died for the idiot that's mocking him. Christ died for the one that picked on him. And Christ died for the other four guys that were laughing and shove him into the locker and get hysterical about putting him down. He died for all of them. The first one we can understand. The second one we can't fathom, right? It's just that the second one is unconditional. And that would be a condition. They're a bully. They're idiots, so I don't love them. Except he doesn't have those conditions. Because true love is unconditional. And if he had those conditions, he wouldn't love you. If he had those conditions, he wouldn't love me. So true love is unconditional. And by the way, it's for the whole world. The Greek word for world here is cosmos. I studied this to the nth degree in seminary. There's no way to get around it. It is defined as the ungodly multitude, everyone. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear people say, this is only the elect. That's ridiculous. It's one word. It always means the whole world and everyone in it. The whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Jesus. That's who this is about. This is the world that God loved. It doesn't say that God loved all the good guys. It doesn't say that God loves all the Jews or that God loves all the saints. It says God so loved the world, even though that world is stiff-arming him. So God's love clearly isn't based on our spiritual condition, right, or our, our moral disposition. It isn't based on our conduct. It isn't based on our attitude toward him. Instead, we read here that God's love for mankind is universal and unconditional. Now, please don't hear me say that salvation is universal. You didn't hear that here. His love is universal. Okay, it's kind of like this. Christ's death on the cross is sufficient for all, but it's only efficient for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You put your faith in him, you'll be saved. You don't, you decide to stiff arm him your whole life, he'll give you your wish when your life is over. Say, so you didn't want to be with me, you wanted to be separated from me, you'll spend eternity separated from him. He's not gonna force his love on you, but he does love you, even the worst of us. Well, while he was alive and all, did God love Hitler? Yeah, I struggle with stuff like that. But I guess he did. Wait, 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 did, 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 did Jesus love Judas? On, on, the, on the night he was betrayed when Judas did all that, Judas felt sorry and he went and hung himself? Yeah, I believe. I've heard this taught, but very few people teach this. They don't want to touch it. I don't know why, but I believe if, Jesus would have, if Judas would have turned around and gone to Jesus like Peter did later, that Jesus would have forgiven him. 
Because where does it say betraying the Lord is the unpardonable sin? It doesn't say that. Peter betrayed him, I think, even worse. He denied him three times. I don't know him with curses from heaven. I don't, I've never met him. I don't even know who you're talking about. He's talking about betrayal, and he got forgiven. So what is it, magical when your betrayal involves money or brings soldiers? Is that different? Judas probably could have been forgiven. He just didn't seek it. And Jesus won't force his love. So it's a tragic ending there. Some of you are going to wrestle with that the whole rest of the time. I'm up here. Wow, Jesus. Forget that for now. We've got to move on. So God's love clearly isn't based on any of that. I love theologian C.S. Lewis. Any of you guys ever read him? Real sharp crowd here. Six of them read C.S. Lewis. That's deep, deep stuff. How many of you have ever read any C.S. Lewis? Let me see your hand. Wow. Almost everyone. Why is it the first time I ask I get nothing? I don't know. Is this on? I know it's on with that one sound. So C.S. Lewis is reading this week that one time at a comparative religions conference. Here's what happened. The wise and the scholarly were having a debate about what's unique about Christianity. And someone suggested that what set Christianity apart from other religions was the concept of incarnation, the idea that God took on human form in Jesus. But someone quickly said, well, actually, other faiths believe that their God appears in human form too. So like, oh, okay. Well, then somebody else suggested that, what about the resurrection, the belief that death is not the final word? Eventually, someone slowly shook their head and brought up a, a fringe couple of religions that have accounts of people returning from the dead. So then the story is told that C.S. Lewis walked into the room, tweed jacket that he always wore, pipe in there, shuffling papers. He's getting ready to teach. He kind of sat in the back and he listened to this spirited debate going on and on. Finally, there was a lull. They're just worn out, if you can imagine that, from debating. And C.S. Lewis spoke up from the back, sitting there with his pipe, and he just said, what's all this rumpus about? And everyone turned in his direction, trying to explain themselves. And they said, well, we're debating what's unique about Christianity. And he said, oh, that's easy, like he normally does. He said, it's grace. But, but that's easy. That, that's simple. Why debate? It's, it's grace. And the room was very, very quiet for a long time. Lewis continued that Christianity uniquely claims God's love comes free of charge, right? No strings attached, unconditional. No other religion makes that claim. I don't know if that's true. Okay, let me give you a couple. After a moment of silence, somebody commented, that maybe you have a point. Buddhists, for example, they follow an eight-fold path to enlightenment. It's not a free ride. Hindus believe in karma, and that says that your actions continually affect the way the world will treat you, and that nothing um, that you say or do will keep from setting in motion other people's actions. It's just if you're good, then good will come back. If you're bad, bad will come back. Someone else observed that even the Jewish code of the law implies that God has requirements for people to be acceptable to him, and Islam, God's a God of judgment, not a God of love. You live to appease him. Think about it. That's true. But Jesus loves unconditionally. That's true love. That's true love. All right, we got seven of these. The first one took 20 minutes. <laughs> That's the bad news. The second one and the rest, I promise you, they're really, really short. Let's pick, I promise you, they're really, really short. For God so loved the world that he gave. According to a footnote in I usually normally use this um, version. This is the English Standard Version. I think of, of modern translations, this is probably the most accurate. Some of them are phrase by phrase. Some of them are word for word translations. They try to take the Greek and it's usually a little bit wooden. So I used to use the New American Standard because it was very, very accurate, accurate but not very poetic. Now they've really worked on the English and this is a word for word translation, extremely accurate, extremely good. So in the margin, it's funny, some of your, I've got a bunch of words at, at the bottom where John 3.16 is, 
And it has this alternate translation of the first part of John 3.16 that's as follows. It says, for this is how God loved the world. Instead of for God so loved the world, that it says, for this is how God loved the world. I love that. It could have been either one. The most famous verse in the world of all time could have gone either way. It means the same thing, but there's a slight twist. This is how God loved the world. This is how God proved his love. This is how much he loved the world. How did God love us? He loved us by giving, by serving, by sacrificing. Conjures up so many different images for almost anyone who hears it. Depending on your holiday memories, Christmas could remind you of anything from warm, happy times of sitting down with the whole family at a long Christmas dinner, to chaotic, stressful times of sitting down with the whole family at a long Christmas dinner. Christmas to some is a hot cup of cocoa at a small town Christmas parade or living nativity. To some of us, it's making sure that everyone at the mall knows that it's not happy holidays, but Merry Christmas, thank you very much. And to some of us, it's about finishing the Christmas shopping as early as possible, like by August. Some have passed down the impression that it's about everything they will get on Christmas morning. But Christmas is much more about giving. See, God gave us this amazing planet to live on. He gave Adam and Eve his own image and a beautiful garden to inhabit. And when they fell, he gave the world his only son, who came as that baby in the manger. Jesus was given gifts as a baby, and when he grew up, he freely gave his own life. By giving his own life, he also gave us the opportunity to have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave. Giving is the outward representation of love. We give it this season out of the overflow of God's love for us. We can't help but follow God's example. So many people around us are sadder at Christmas time than all the rest of the year. You only have to go as far as a homeless shelter or a nursing home to find someone in need. They might even be sitting next to you right now. Find someone who has less than you and give. This Christmas, so love the world that you give. True love gives, or it's not true love. My wife was telling me about a saying. I said I wasn't going to use it because I said it was cheesy, but it's true. But how's it go again? It isn't love. Love isn't love until you give it away. I mean, how many of us have heard that kind of bumper sticker thing? And I sat there and said, well, I'm not using that until I kept thinking about it and going, but it's true. It just is. If you keep it to yourself, how do you feel? Well, I really love it, and they don't, it's nothing. It's nothing. So that's another thing about love. You are gonna give it away. People are going to know. Next thing, true love is priceless. That was pretty good, by the way, five minutes with that one. True love is priceless, his only. Here we see the value of the Father's love for us. Not only was he willing to give, but see, he was willing to give the only one that he had. When you give to someone out of your abundance, that's one thing. But when you give out of your poverty, that's entirely different, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? If you had several vehicles, it might be seen as a noble thing if you give one to a family that doesn't have one, right? 
Hey, I'm wealthy, I have 10 cars, a bunch of SUVs, two Ferraris, and one Gremlin. It's 1978, I think it still runs. There's a family that's in need. I want you to know I'm giving them that because it costs too much to have it towed to the, well, that's, it's not even sacrificial. That's not even really love. That's just, or even if you gave them a good one, but what if you had several vehicles and this family's in need? You know, you got two vehicles. Or what if you only had one vehicle and this family's really, really in need and you gave them that? Well, what are you going to do now? Well, are you going to drive? That's sacrificial, right? Why? Because that cost you something. You just put yourself in their position. True love is sacrificial. It's, it's, it's also priceless. And true love is personal. He gave his only son. Gave his only son. God's love is not merely some abstract concept like a lot of religions talk about. It isn't just a philosophy or, or a theological construct. God's love was made manifest in this world through the person of Jesus Christ. The only son of the Father, Jesus came into this world to reveal to us the love of God in human form because he loves you. Why? We already found out it's unconditional. It's not for anything you did or any way you look or anything you can offer. I love the way Max Licato puts it. Licato, Licato, not sure which, but I love the way this guy puts it. It's so true. Let me read. There are many reasons that God saved you. To bring glory to himself, to appease his justice, to demonstrate his sovereignty, but one of the sweetest reasons that God saved you is because he's fond of you. He likes having you around. He thinks you are the best thing to come down the pike in quite a while. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe. He chose your heart. And the Christmas gift he sent you in Bethlehem, face it, friend, he's crazy about you. That's true love. Child was once trying to quote from John 3.16 in the King James Version. Children, sometimes they'll just plow right through when they mess it up. He said, his only, which says his only begotten son, but the child misquoted, he said, his only forgotten son. But it's one of those slips of the tongue that's, that's painfully true, isn't it? I mean, how in the world can we get to this time of year and without effort completely forget Jesus? How can we do that? I mean, I'm telling you right now, if it comes time for my birthday and you all show me by giving gifts to each other and not me, I'm gonna be offended. I have a party and you all show up somewhere else celebrating something else and completely ignore me. I'm gonna think, what kind of friends are you? My love language is gifts. I, you know, you better show up and you better prove that you... But here it is, Jesus' birthday comes around and without effort, we forget him. Out of the mouth of babes. For by most people in the world today, Jesus Christ is truly forgotten. His life forgotten, his love is forgotten, his sacrifice is forgotten. So it's our job as Christians what did I say to you guys as God's ambassadors to help them remember, to help people reset at, Christian time, at, at Christmas time? I've done this for several weeks, and I don't know what you all do. I know what some of you do. Pete MacGyver, I know that he's a manager or a, what, what, tell me your job title. Logistics manager. Logistics manager. No, you're not. <laughs> he's not a logistics manager. He doesn't know what his job is. I think he might. I'll give you one more chance. What's your job? I'm an ambassador for 
There you go. Did you hear what he said? Pete MacGyver, I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ who happens to be a logistics manager. Craig, Hussainer, where I saw you there. You are an anesthesia, blah, blah, blah. what do you do? Anesthesia. Anesthesia. No, you don't. What's your real job? Craig for saying it. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm a recruiter. I'll bring people to hear the gospel. That's my job as a believer. I happen to be an anesthesiologist or however you say that. I don't care what your occupation is. Maybe some of you are like, well, I'm really, really important. I see a police officer back there in uniform. Have I done anything wrong today that you can? <laughs> okay, you're, I have. You're counting several things. Wow. Okay, welcome to my world. You're not, I know you, I'm getting to know you. You're not a police officer. You're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. I know many of these people, I'm getting to know people like I never have had the opportunity. I love the chance to, okay, you're gonna think I'm crazy right now. I love the chance to plant a church from the ground up. Pastor, I don't know if you know this, some of us know where you came from. (laughs) You had a little bit larger church. But I've never seen this kind of momentum. I've never seen this kind of love. I've never seen people so together and so excited about putting things together every single week and starting from the ground up and what we have because I think I have a sneaky suspicion you know true love and you know that no matter what your occupation are, stay-at-home mom, student, police officer, anesthesiologist, you're really ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And some of you are gonna make that job come true when you bring people Christmas time who don't know this true love. Number five, true love is accessible that whoever believes in him. The really good news about God's love, it's not limited to a select few, it's whoever believes. It's not whoever is athletic enough, it's not whoever's smart enough, it's bottom shelf. Jesus came and he said, I'm gonna put this so low, everybody can reach it, I did the hard part. You can, so if you're at the top rung of the ladder, let me tell you, it's gonna be harder for you. If you think that you're all of that, it's gonna be harder for you because I don't know about you, if I'm, we have a 10-foot tall Christmas tree. I'm up, I'm up to the top of the ladder trying to put something there, and I realize I got to do something at the bottom. I probably need to climb down, right? If I try to reach down, I'm going to knock me, me over, the tree over, all the ornaments over, and my wife will be a little bit upset. It's on the bottom. You don't have to reach up. You don't have to be highfalutin. In fact, it's probably harder for you if you are. Whoever believes in him. Number six, almost done now. True love does not judge that whoever believes in him should not perish. God's goal in sending his son from heaven to earth was not condemn, to condemn us but, or show us how bad we are, how unworthy. In fact, I, I will drift here. Look at the very next verse. Go, well, maybe, I mean, he's supposed to judge us. No, look at the next verse, verse 17, John three seventeen. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. I mean, as, almost as though he anticipated when he showed this kind of love unconditional, the next thing was going to be, well, you got to get him, God. We love revenge. Stop that. I didn't come into this world to judge it. That'll come later. Right now, I came to love it. Right now, I came to give myself to love it. You guys have gone astray. I'm going to bring you home and to save the world through him. God's only desire in sending his son was to show us his love and to draw us into a love relationship with himself. And then finally, number seven, true love is useful. It's beneficial. I mean, you can do something with it. There's value in it, but to have eternal life. You know, more than 50 years ago at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, I'm from, I mean, I went to high school in Maryland, so I know where this is at. It's a famous um, uh, university. And a young sociology professor assigned his class the project of interviewing 200 city youth residing in downtown slums. 
and he asked them to predict their future. So here's what they said. Students predicted that about 90% would serve time in prison. Well, that's really, that's really hopeful. I mean, just looking at the life they came from, they said, look, in 20, 30 years, they're all going to be in jail. 25 years later, the same professor tracks this thing. He asked a class to track down the original boys and discover what had happened. 180 were located. That's pretty good. Only four had ever spent even one day in jail. Well, see, that's, that's way better odds than people who grow up with everything. So this is really weird. So they stayed after it. Why were the predictions so far off? Looking for common factors, over 100 of the boys mentioned the strong influence of a teacher they all had in common. Over 100 of them. They then located the teacher. A 70-year-old Sheila O'Rourke in a Memphis nursing home. And she was puzzled by the interest in her. And all she could exclaim was, all I ever did was love each one of them. That's all I ever did. See, true love makes a huge difference, doesn't it? I disagree with Sheila. No, you did far more than that. You don't even know it, but you reset the course of their life. They didn't have any hope. They didn't think love was real. You showed them that. You put the compass on true north. And it made all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another wonderful day at Impact. Lord, we thank you for what you're preparing here. God, whoever would have thought that in the launch phase as we assign jobs and come together and find out who's going to serve where and prepare and look forward to a beautiful day when we have a grand opening that we'd already be seeing you move uh, powerfully in this church, Lord. We're not just looking forward, Lord. We're expecting and seeing you move right now, God. Keep bringing people to us, Lord, who believe in this mission and believe in the five purposes that we are to be about as Christians and as churches, Lord. And we pray that people come in our midst that are fired up or that people will come in our midst that don't know you will get saved and then get fired up. Thank you that you are here, Lord. Thank you that this is your church. Remind us of that each and every week and go with us as we seek to bring people in, the lost sheep that you came to seek and to save. For it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you next week.